morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Aerospace Nation. I'm Larry Stutzring, Director of Research for the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Well, the end of the Cold War meant to some in the early 90s that the threat of nuclear weapons confrontation was over. It was not. From 2010 to 2025 alone, Russia will deploy some 21 new types of nuclear platforms. Of course, we're in an age of renewed threats of nuclear strikes from Russia involving NATO's support to Ukraine. To our west, China has nearly one dozen such systems in production and under development. Recent revelations of China's rapid construction of ICBM sites are no less alarming. They seek their own nuclear triad of ICBMs, bombers, and subs. Well, during this nuclear weapons push by our peer competitors, U.S. nuclear modernization took a back burner in our nation's priorities. Thanks to determined efforts by the Air Force, recapitalization is in its early stages. Much work is ahead. Fortunately, the nation has superb leadership, ensuring Air Force airmen, missileers, and bomber crews are organized, trained, and equipped, and ready to employ to maintain the ultimate backstop of the nation's ability to deter nuclear aggression. Two of these highly respected leaders are with us today to examine this important security enterprise from the Air Force's perspective. We are privileged today to host in the studio, Lieutenant General Jim Dawkins, and remoting in with us is Major General Michael Lutton. General Dawkins is the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration, that involves providing the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff with direction and guidance for Air Force nuclear deterrence operations. Now, General Lutton is the commander of the 20th Air Force under Air Force Global Strike Command. He is responsible for maintaining and operating the Air Force's on-alert, combat-ready ICBM force. Well, thank you both for joining us today, and I'd like to give you uh, a chance to to give us some thoughts. But first, let me remind our audience that uh, you can raise your hand and ask a question, use the raise your hand function on the app, or you can type in a question on the Q&A function of the app also. And we'll get the, to those questions in the second half hour. So with that, uh, welcome again, General Dawkins. I'll hand it over to you. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the offer, the invite to come here and talk about something that uh, we are paying a lot of attention to in the Air Force and have been for several years now. Um, and it, it happened, we, we were paying attention to this even before the threat has uh, really manifested itself, uh, at least more visible to the public in the last several years. You know, you mentioned uh, Russia. I mean, they are almost complete with their nuclear modernization of their basic forces, uh, so much so that they're worried, working on novel capabilities that uh, the world has not seen before. And we're concerned about that. China, you know, uh, a breakout, as some folks have termed it, a nuclear breakout with their, their growth. Uh, we are concerned about, you know, um, how they're going to use these uh, systems, their tribe that they're developing in the future, of course. And North Korea, uh, we, we didn't talk about North Korea, but that is definitely a concern. Um, uh, their leaders talked about how they want to use those weapons for coercion. And speaking of that, you know, we've seen with the Ukraine conflict how um, Saber rattling, nuclear saber rattling starts early. And I think that caught some of us off guard. Uh, you know, historically, when the military plays exercises, we start off a conventional exercise. And then at the very end, we um, 
have a, an, uh, an issue where it goes to nuclear use, and then we quickly uh, move on and, and go see lessons learned. Uh, we've got to start thinking differently about how we do these exercises, how we how we uh, plan for competition or conflict where nuclear saber rattling or the threat of nuclear use is early because we've got to ensure that we've, we've thought through that before we're faced with that uh, issue uh, head on. And so that's where uh, we're pushing hard to increase everyone's nuclear IQ. Uh, it's just so that we, if you're thinking about how an adversary might threaten or use nuclear weapons um, in a conflict, that helps us control escalation so that we don't stumble into something that uh, by mistake or accident. And so that's uh, uh, something we're working hard on as well inside the Air Force. Turning to nuclear modernization, uh, uh, we talked years ago about a, uh, a bow wave, a nuclear bow wave, a modernization bow wave, and what that means, like a tidal wave of um, uh, requirements coming our way of fielding new systems. Well, that is here. And we were talking about that back in 2010, 2012 time, I mean, sequestration hits. Um, but back in the Obama administration, we started several of these projects. Um, and by 2030, we're going to have several uh, weapon systems field. I'm, I'm going to look down at my uh, piece of paper here because there are so many. The B-21, and of course, I was just out at Palmdale for that rollout. Uh, that is, uh, you know, tracking well. The Sentinel or the ICBM replacement, uh, by 2030, we will have those uh, starting to be fielded. This B-61-12, the tactical uh, weapon, if you will, nuclear weapon uh, for, for Europe and for strategic command or for NATO and strategic command, that is uh, uh, being fielded also. We'll have a new ICBM warhead and a reentry vehicle, the Mark 21 Alpha and the W87-1, the warhead that goes inside of the reentry vehicle. We'll have a new long-range standoff cruise missile to replace the air launch cruise missile. Uh, again, all these systems I'm, that uh, we're talking about are replacing systems that are anywhere from uh, 30 to 60 years old. Um, B-52, 60-year-old airplane is going to get new engines, uh, also new radar and some new comm equipment. We've got the MH-139 to replace the Hueys. That's a helicopter out in the missile field they use for security. Uh, there'll actually also be some here in the National Capital Region. I provide support for some of the missions here, non-nuclear missions here in, this, in the, the capital. And then the Survival Airborne Operations Center um, to replace the NAOC. That will be uh, well underway by 2030. And last but definitely not least, really should start off with this, is the Nuclear Command and Control and Communications Network. Uh, that system of systems, uh, radios, terminals, uh, comm paths, transport pathways that are, uh, you know, right now we are, um, sustaining what we have, modernizing the things that are uh, in, in the pipeline and looking to the future of what may come next. Um, not to forget our Navy counterparts. This is part of that bow wave. Of course, they have the Columbia class, uh, ballistic missile submarine and uh, refurbished Trident missiles that are going to be uh, building in the 30s as well. And then um, a key piece that doesn't get enough attention, that's the National Nuclear Security uh, Administration. They're under the Department of Energy and they produce the nuclear warheads. And so they have uh, their government-owned contract-operated setup of, of different uh, design labs and production facilities across the United States, about 56,000 people strong. But they are, um, they are embarking on a, a recapitalization of not only all their production and infrastructure, some of these things date back to, the, um, to uh, World War II and the Manhattan Project, uh, all, all these things uh, 
uh, are being redone and, and, and uh, made new so we can produce or sustain our current nuclear weapons and produce the new nuclear weapons to replace the ones that are 40 and 50 years old. Um, our, our challenges right now, though, are transition. Transition. You know, anytime you transition and do everything at the same time, you've got to really be careful about um, how you orchestrate that. And uh, Major General Lutton's going to talk a little bit about that. I'm sure I know that, that weighs on his mind how he's going to do that in the missile fields. Um, so with that transition, you've got the transition in the weapon systems, you're transitioning the people. Uh, you've got to train new people to go and, and for instance, fly the B-21 as you retire uh, other, other platforms. Um, and so that is going to require a lot of work by Air Force Global Strike Command to ensure that they, they again, do that just right in 20th and 8th Air Force. Uh, definitely not to be forgotten is the defense industrial base. Um, COVID, we're coming out of COVID. And we've had several challenges there. Um, some of those are supply chains. So we're going to have to really monitor the, you know, the DIB is really going to have to monitor the supply chain and the hiring that's going to be needed to uh, do this modernization. Uh, believe it or not, what I worry about most, um, more than anything right now, more than technology, is concrete and rebar, uh, reinforcement steel that goes into concrete to build the 650 construction projects that we have, not just in the missile fields, but across the nuclear enterprise that have to be built in the next 12 years or in 13 states. And so uh, we need welders and pipe fitters, electricians, all those type of folks to do this volume of work. This is something we have not seen in decades, this, uh, this massive undertaking. The solution for that is just gonna be a whole of government, um, whole of government push. We've got to have the entirety of government helping with this transition and building these systems. Again, it is a lot, there are a lot of systems, but we've been living off the investments of uh, several decades worth of, um, you know, the last recap we did in the 60s, we're still living off of that and uh, living off the recap in the 80s. And now we're 40 years down the road and just starting this new recap. I think we can do it. It's gonna take uh, a lot of hard work, uh, but we've done it before. And what I would recommend folks do is a book I read about two months ago. I wish I'd read it several months prior or several years ago. It's called A Fiery Peace in the Cold War by Ed Sheehan. It talks about Bernie Schriever, uh, who got the Air Force going into the ICBM uh, world and, and fielded that. And they thought differently about how they did things, uh, differently about how they tested. And they've got that system fielded very quickly. And I, I offer that to the reader, uh, to the audience out there. Take a look at that, the, the refresher memory and how fast our government and how fast our defense industrial base can work when there's a threat. And I would argue that the threat today is uh, is as real or perhaps worse than it was even back in the 50s. So again, thank you so much for having us here today. And uh, I think we'll turn it over to Mike now. Yeah, of course, Will, let me just say, uh, tremendous. I mean, when you talk about about wave, but your comment about raising the uh, nuclear IQ is something that needs to be sustained. You know, we're not we're not across the finish line. Help you with that, too, thank by you. the way. Hey, General Lutton, uh, you're up. Please tell us what's on your mind. Thanks, sir. And uh, I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't thank General Dawkins for his uh, decades of service to the nation. So it's great to share the stage with him today. But uh, thanks so much for your service, General Dawkins, to the nation uh, as a great teammate and a great part of the joint force. Thanks for your leadership, sir. So it's an exciting time uh, to be in global strike in our Air Force and in particular 20th Air Force. Uh, it's exciting because we uh, have our alert mission. Uh, that we thrive on, that we cherish, but also we do all of our nuclear weapons sustainment in 20th Air Force, so the 377th 
uh, airbase wing conducts all of those activities. So it's exciting times for us as we prepare for modernization uh, in two part, uh, both for Sentinel, our ground-based deterrent and uh, Gray Wolf. And quite, quite honestly, um, for me, uh, the things I tend to focus on with the modernization are the human capital piece, uh, the talent management, if you will, uh, where the teams are at and uh, how to best position and best develop our airmen uh, so we can be successful in executing both of those programs. So exciting opportunity. Couple of uh, highlights uh, from that perspective, in particular uh, with the Gray Wolf. And Gray Wolf for us, interestingly enough, we're learning quite a bit about Gray Wolf that informs Sentinel. Um, and one may go, well, why is that? Uh, some of the similar questions about talent management, uh, talent retention, talent placement, uh, when you're fielding a new weapon system are agnostic of the weapon system, whether it's an aircraft or a missile. Uh, uh, system. So Gray Wolf right now is teaching us some lessons that we'll uh, definitely export uh, to Sentinel. In particular with Gray Wolf, uh, about a year ago, we began an effort uh, with the Irish Air Corps uh, and have what I would say uh, developed a nice exchange program with them. And we'll continue that effort uh, to get knowledge on the 139 platform. Uh, we've also partnered Global Strike Command uh, 20th Air Force and Headquarters USAFE have partnered uh, with the Italian Air Force, and we're looking to realize an exchange program with the Italian Air Force this summer, uh, where one of our uh, Hilo pilots will go over to Italy for three years and fly their version of the 139 and then come back in uh, to our 139 community. So those are exciting times for uh, not only our command, but our Air Force and those airmen. Um, with respect to Sentinel, uh, we're about uh, setting the conditions with the operational force to realize uh, success in the modernization effort. Uh, so what does that mean from an application standpoint? What you'd see, uh, and some of the details are classified, and I'll be mindful of that, is, is our focus on F.E. Warren Air Force Base, which will be the first base for Sentinel, and the action and activities that we need to do on the installation as well as out in the missile complex uh, to ensure our Air Force is successful at modernizing. And, and I'm very excited about our progress there. Uh, organizationally, uh, we've actually done some changes also to set the conditions for success uh, for Sentinel. Uh, some may know that we used to have a flight test squadron, a single flight test squadron. We do have that single flight test squadron still, uh, but we have evolved uh, to a test and evaluation group uh, so it's a group level effort now. Uh, we have a test support squadron, a flight test squadron, and then a maintenance test squadron, because uh, we believe the activity for maintenance test is going to be fairly uh, significant for Sentinel with uh, all the new equipment that it's going to come on for that intercontinental ballistic missile system. So we're excited about those efforts uh, and look forward to having a dialogue with you and the participants today, sir. Thank you. Well, thanks, General. Uh, I really appreciate uh, another aspect of that. It's that you are, are have a great set of airmen uh, in both your uh, staff and out there in the field doing great work and, and thinking ahead. And that's really uh, exciting for us here. Uh, so thanks for those re uh, previews, but I'd like to go a little deeper into some of these uh, issues. And I'll start with General Dawkins. Uh, you know, it we know the Air Force is really pushed and we're finally, although it's a bio wave, maybe a tsunami sized uh, 
uh, work ahead. But uh, what could disrupt this? I mean, things are good. The funding's there. Public is is in favor of this modernization. But what could happen that might go wrong? Well, you know, the, the key is stable funding, and, and that's something that we've got bipartisan support on the Hill, and we have had for several years. Uh, this gets a lot of attention in the nuclear enterprise, of course, and a lot of people uh, put a lot of scrutiny on it, uh, and for good reason. That's the, the debate has been brought up uh, to a level I've not seen in decades, probably 30 years, uh, and that's good to have the debate, uh, but there's been great broad uh, bipartisan support. So something I used to worry about, I'm not as concerned about it anymore. Uh, bigger concern, I, I touched on this earlier, is that uh, defense industrial base and ensuring that we can uh, collectively across the United States ensure we have enough workers and raw materials to um, to produce what we need to produce on the timeline we need to produce it. Because quite frankly, we have we've delayed modernization so many times. Um, we've deferred programs, you know, back in the two, early two thousands, um, and then we had sequestration hit. So we we don't have a lot of margin to to produce these. And while we produce these systems, we've still got to keep the current ones um, uh, up to speed. In other, in other words, the ICBMs that uh, General Lutton commands and is in charge of out there in the missile fields have to be as good on their last day as they were on their first day. And that continues to get more challenging. So again, uh, the sustained commitment uh, by uh, Defense Department, by Capitol Hill, by defense ind industry, and um, those are the things that we, we've got to ensure that we keep. Yeah, very good. General Lutton, any thoughts on that? Yes, sir, uh, for me, uh, it is about two things primarily, which is efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, effectiveness uh, from the standpoint of uh, being able to support our air component commander as he meets the Commander Stratcom's mission. And General Dawkins alluded to that uh, about uh, being as effective as we are today uh, that we will be on our last day. So when we look at effectiveness, uh, I think that's absolutely critical. But there's a componency of efficiency uh, in there. Um, and so uh, there, there's a mantra that I have, and it's, um, you know, time is a commodity. And so there are things that we can do right now uh, to set the conditions for success, both in Gray Wolf and Sentinel, uh, that allow us the ability uh, uh, to remain on schedule on time for the nation. Yeah, very good. Hey, uh, General Lutton, you know, you mentioned uh, just in passing uh, retention, and, you know, we know that's a problem across all the services. Do you see that being a challenge for you as you go through this transition out in the field? So uh, there are actions that we're doing right now to expand opportunities for our airmen. So historically, and by historically, I can only talk about the time that I've served, we've never really been total force uh, in the ICBM business. Uh, this past December, we graduated our first reservists from the U.S. Air Force Weapons School uh, as a reserve weapons officer. <clears throat> Exciting time for her. She's a pathfinder. Uh, she'll lead the way. And we are looking to build so much more uh, total force opportunity in the ICBM business. And that does two things for us, I think, primarily. Uh, one, it gives us incredible depth of expertise. Uh, and two, it allows our airmen to have options. It allows our airmen to have options as they uh, continue to serve in, in a vital nuclear career field. 
but also have options as as they're looking uh, both personally and professionally in their career. That's uh, it's very insightful. Uh, well, let me come back to you, General Dawkins. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, pit production, of course, for the audience, that bowling ball or so sized uh, piece that's got the nuclear fuel inside of it. Uh, you know, there, there have been recent studies or reports that the uh, National Nuclear Security Administration uh, may have some problems producing those pits. And, and actually, that uh, industrial base piece has been flagged for a couple decades. Uh, are you concerned with this? Uh, is this something that uh, may slow down progress? Well, I'm concerned with NNSA um, capacity, just like I'm concerned about the rest of our, you know, the defense industrial base capacity. Talked about pits. You know, the last time that we produced a plutonium pit in, in the United States was about the year I entered the Air Force in 1989. And so um, to have taken a 30 year, uh, you know, be absent from producing pits for over 30 years and all of a sudden have to start that up again, it's not uh, as simple as building an airplane, believe it or not, because this is, these are special nuclear materials, special safeguards, and um, requires a lot of skill to not only make these, but also to build the facilities that they will produce these at. So NNSA has a big volume of work that they've got to do. And, and having served there for two years uh, back in 2013 as a one star, I know that organization pretty well. And, and that the people there are, are working hard to, to, to get us where we need to go. But because we ignored that infrastructure for so long, the NNSA infrastructure, we, we can't turn it around on a dime. And I, I know the team out there, the leadership team, are looking at this um, uh, daily to ensure that not only can we produce pits, but we can produce other components that aren't uh, talked about as much. And so this will be something that I know the administ administrator Ruby and uh, others in the administration are looking at closely. I know Capitol Hill looks at it closely. But again, we've got to give them sustained support and funding. Um, and just like we do with um, DOD ensure that we are looking critically at all the steps we're taking, but again, to give them support uh, that they need to produce uh, the, the weapons that we need um, to put on our deterrent. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, uh, another piece uh, you re referenced, uh, General Dawkins, was uh, the whole NC3 piece, the Nuclear Command and Control and Communications. Can you talk a little more in detail of what that entails uh, and what the status is of that piece? Well, um, so the NC3, as it's called, it's confusing to a lot of folks. And I like to break it down uh, as simple as I can. And even then, it may not be so um, so simple. But NC3 is, is the architecture that uh, has radio terminals on satellites, radio terminals, and ground stations on submarines, on airplanes, uh, um, again, that are interconnected with various means of uh, cabling. Uh, it could be telephone wires. It could be copper. It could be internet. Cipernet. Some of it's um, some of these things are encrypted. Some of them are not encrypted. Some of them are EMP uh, electromagnetic pulse resistant. Some aren't. And there's so many of these different systems that it is a it is a ensures that if president has to authorize the, the nuclear use or um, stop nuclear use, his message will always get through no matter what environment. And so it's a redundant system. And it is very old. And quite frankly, it was one of the last things that we began to modernize when we set out on this modernization journey. Uh, but it's the most important because without the NC3 system, 
to ensure that uh, the president's orders can get out to the force, we really don't have a deterrent, a nuclear deterrent. And so, well, again, what we're doing right now is sustaining the old systems. And I think we've just gotten away from uh, five and a half inch floppy disks several years ago. We don't have any more five and a half inch floppy disks on some of these systems, um, but we're sustaining the old systems. We've had systems that we've been put into um, put into modernization programs five, 10 years ago that are just starting to field now. And then we're, uh, so there's a number of those systems, a number of those radios and terminals. I, I will spare you the acronym SOUP, uh, but just suffice to say that uh, they exist. I've seen them up in various production facilities and uh, they're making great, uh, great strides in that. And we've got this future, the future uh, comm systems. Uh, what we are trying to do in, in the Air Force, you know, there's another program in the Air Force called Air Battle Management System or JADC2 in the Joint Force uh, is another architecture. Uh, we're trying to make sure that what is done in the JADC2 ABMS space is not totally redundant with what we're doing. So in the nuclear command and control and communication space, we're gonna to try to leverage what we can uh, with JADC2 and ABMS. And some of the defense industry experts have been talking about that too, and we're working closely with them. So it's confusing. There are about 220 NC3 systems. And the Air Force has 80% of those. Uh, DISA has some number, and of course the Navy has a smaller number. So it's, it's no small task to make sure that we uh, sustain what we have as we transition to a modern NC3. Yeah. Are, how are those brought together? Those three, you know, the services, uh, the programs brought together. Uh, they, uh, so some of them are, uh, are shared systems. Quite a few of them are shared systems. Um, and they are, STRATCOM is the operational uh, orchestrator of all these, but we work very closely with the Navy counterparts. And of course, DESA, uh, uh, it, I would like to say it works seamlessly together because you just don't really realize whether you're transmitting on a Navy system or Air Force system. And not when I say Air Force, by the way, I mean Space Force as well, Department of Air Force, because there is quite a bit of it that resides up there on the, uh, in the space realm. Uh, so right now it, it's seamlessly interactive. There's a lot of great airmen and uh, civilians out there pushing hard to make sure it stays interconnected. I just want to say also, I, I think General Deptula, the Dean of Mitchell Institute, has some of those five and a half five and a quarter inch floppies in his garage. I'll talk to him. <laughs> but uh, so uh, General Lutton, I want to ask you uh, a little bit about, you know, the gymnastics of this massive undertaking that you're going to have to maintain your operational readiness and tempo. And I, I just wonder how that physical work out in the field that General Dawkins described, huge, you know, almost historic. Uh, how's that going to affect your mission and how are you going to work around that? Sir, thanks for the question. And uh, that is something that we've spent uh, almost two and a half years on right now working. Some of the actions and activities are ongoing uh, right now. Uh, I am absolutely comfortable uh, with where the force is at uh, right now in preparation for Sentinel and also in our ability day-to-day uh, -to, -day to meet uh, our Air Component Commander's requirements in support of uh, Commander Stratcom. Uh, when, I, when I look to the future, I think it, it is uh, more complex, in particular, uh, as you have uh, two wings modernizing at the same time. Uh, that, that's really what our analysis uh, over the last two and a half years has shown us. Uh, we think uh, 
that when we look at a single wing, um, while it will be a considerable effort, um, it, it'll be largely uh, an effort on our contractor team, uh, Northrop, and their subcontractors. Uh, I know that the conditions will be set at that operational wing, in particular FE Warren. Uh, I, I really don't have concerns about that, uh, quite honestly. Um, where, where the questions I still have, and I'm still working with my team on it, are when we begin to overlap with this wing and uh, our second wing at Malmstrom. Uh, I don't see those as insurmountable. Uh, and I mentioned time uh, as a commodity earlier. Uh, we have the time now to think through that. We have the time now uh, to uh, adjust to that uh, as needed. Uh, but again, I, I don't see any insurmountable challenges that we have. Good, thank you, General. Um, I can't, I can't fail to mention our bombers. Uh, and General Dawkins, I'm just curious that you were with us uh, about a year ago. You talked a little bit about the implications of uh, putting uh, bombers back on continuous alert. Can you, can you give us some details on what the impact is and what the parameters are to do that? I think we have to, you know, people like to bring that up as a possibility. And the last time we had bombers on alert, we had several hundred bombers, uh, you know, 400, 500, uh, those type of numbers uh, to be able to put on alert. And we don't. And right now we, um, we're right around 150 bombers. And by the way, those are bombers that are uh, the nation's only bombers and our allies only bombers. None of our allies have bomber aircraft. And none of the other services have bomber aircraft. It's just the Air Force. And so when we look at the ones that are nuclear coded, we've got about 66 of those, 20 B2s and uh, 46 B-52s. The B-1s that we have are, are conventional only now. They started out as nuclear, but they're conventional only now. And we've just had to reduce some of those because they've become so difficult to sustain. And so we're in a very low number of bombers. And uh, so as we go forward, uh, when we talk about putting bombers on alert, you have to ask for how long and um, and what's your what's the reason to do that? And when we, when we look at bringing in the B-21, and um, there's been several numbers thrown around, but you know, no less than 100. There's folks talking about 145. I know at various times we've got to ensure that uh, we we center out on the right number of bombers because it's not just a nuclear mission. Um, if you stand something up on alert, you take away from the other combatant commanders' ability to use the bombers for presence missions or or other type of um, dynamic force employment. So. Uh, we need to get to a, a set number of bombers that uh, we can cover the combatant commander's requirements um, as they come up uh, and also be able to maintain our readiness on the nuclear side, day-to-day -day readiness there. Uh, but again, to have to put something back on alert is uh, not only numbers of bombers, but it's going to be more people, more uh, support equipment, more facilities. And so those are uh, things we take seriously when we start having those discussions. Yeah, very good. Um, General Ludden, I want to kind of seg to uh, another topic here. Uh, you know, we had, the, with the missileers out in the field, we had some ups and downs with them over uh, the years since uh, Strategic Air Command was in the business. And uh, at issue, I'm talking about, you know, the, the zero tolerance or zero performance defects, uh, you probably say, uh, and it was kind of a balance between that zero defect and, and a more flexible oversight of 
training and operations and standards. And uh, we know that sometimes uh, standard perfection in the old days might have created some negative behaviors. But on the other hand, we're dealing with uh, nuclear weapons, which is understandable. So where is the aim today in training programs and operational uh, programs for these incredibly talented airmen we have out in the missile fields? Yeah, thanks for the question, sir. Um, so that entire effort um, began under General Wilson almost eight, nine years ago uh, that really completely revamped our whole operational training uh, structure um, such that folks that didn't serve uh, after 2014 wouldn't even recognize it today. Uh, and, and quite honestly, it, it's uh, very positive. Uh, and I think um, one that really focuses on uh, performance of the individual airmen and the individual airmen uh, ability to assess where they're at uh, and also work with their leadership within their squad and their leadership being their weapons officers, their leadership being their instructor teams uh, to further their development as an operator. Um, I, I fully realize success is never final, right? So it's something that I do not uh, take my eye off on. Um, I maintain my mission ready status. Uh, I take my check rides. I take my, uh, in fact, I'll have one this Friday, not a check ride, but uh, uh, my sim ride. Uh, so I, I am integrated into that process the best way a NAFCAN commander could be integrated into that process to understand what, what the lieutenants and the captains are seeing day in and day out. Uh, what we are uh, working with uh, the wing commanders on and the group commanders and the squadron commanders, in particular operations, um, is how do we focus and make sure that the training uh, and the focus area is as realistic as possible and it's focused on uh, combatant commander and air component commander needs and that it has a very healthy uh, objective assessment uh, process so that we can, as a team, go forward and develop uh, our teamwork uh, going forward. So excited about that, but uh, don't take my eye off of that. So. Very good. Thank you, General. Hey, I, I do want to ask one more question, kind of in that venue about the security piece. Uh, as you transition, we spoke about the helicopter from the UH-1 to the uh, MH-139. And, and you talked about the training piece of that, but those are important to security, even as you're doing the transition to Sentinel. Is that an issue for you and how are you gonna handle that? Now, so it's, I, I think it's one where I talked about earlier where Gray Wolf is kind of, uh, if you will, kind of a lead scout for some things that we'll see with Sentinel. So one of the uh, efforts we're working on that we've signed it out um, to make sure we stay on timeline with our training and our operational test is we, we are standing up a provisional helicopter squadron at Malmstrom. It'll be the 550th helicopter squadron. And its sole focus will be on uh, a training uh, while our teammates at Maxwell uh, ramp up their training capability. So our effort at Malmstrom for training and operational tests will be no longer than five years. And that'll, that squadron will stand up uh, sometime this February uh, and take that mission for five years. 
and so we're doing that uh, to make sure there's no uh, disruption in our student production and importantly, our operational test. And, and I, you know, I'd quote General Ray here, um, when we're looking at our operational test, uh, what we're not looking to do uh, is develop old new, right? So we have a new weapon system uh, with the Gray Wolf. Uh, so there's some great things that the Huey has done for us, uh, but it would be completely incorrect to export every TTP from the Huey and apply it to the Gray Wolf. It would be completely incorrect to export the standard conventional load, if you will, of our defenders on a Huey and say that's what we need on a Gray Wolf. Uh, so I think those are exciting times and they're very informative uh, for how we'll look at uh, Sentinel. Yes, it, you know, the history of the, this helicopter is just crazy how long it's taken and it's and we're there now. And it's a very important part of this. Uh, good on you both. Uh, for helping that through. Uh, I want to turn a little bit to a little more about uh, discussion of what's happening in the world. We alluded to it earlier in the discussion, and that's, you know, really uh, what's happening in China. Uh, you know, open source, just amazing photos of the build out of the missile fields, of course, and, and what they're doing across their complex. And, and, and you know, it took us off guard how much Russia has done uh, how many different programs, and they they really didn't stop after the Cold War. So I wonder, you know, looking at this world today where we've got both China, as you said, you added General Dawkins, North Korea, uh, Russia, and others, and what we're seeing in Ukraine, you know, what are we learning from this about how we handle our, our strategic deterrence operations? Well, you know, you talked with uh, General Lutton about his, his uh, group force morale. I think um, what we've seen in Ukraine, what we've seen with China, has really sharpened everyone's focus on the importance of having that backstop, that deterrence backstop, that silent service of those uh, ICBM operators 24-7 uh, for over 50 years. There's been somebody in those silos or in the launch centers um, waiting for a president's order, professionals. And uh, so that, again, sharpened people's focus. I, I hope it's sharpening people's focus as well on uh, that are running the programs trying to develop the, the new sense of uh, the new sets of programs and capabilities that we have. What we've also learned, I think, is you know people talk about well, would China go from a, uh, a uh, no first use to some other policy? And I said, well, I don't know. I just judge on capabilities, and capabilities take decades to develop, but intent can change overnight. And so, yeah. regardless of what China's current uh, intent may be, it could certainly change. And we think that they are going to have the capability to have a different type of intent. Um, Korea, same thing. Again, Russia, I think it really, again, brought things into focus with, for NATO um, when Russia invaded a peaceful nation and just for land. And uh, I think many people thought we were past that stage. That only happened in World War II or in, in Vietnam or Pika, uh, uh, you know, Kuwait. But no, that still happens. And so we and the service right now have to take our focus from a counter-terror, and we're, we're getting there, we've made some great stretch from a counter-terror focus of, um, of going after uh, cells and groups like that to get back into this state-on-state um, -state power and how, how that uh, competition or campaigning or whatever term you want to use, um, how we do that so we can manage our way through these tenuous times. 
Um, the Defense Department, uh, Secretary Austin's talked a lot about integrated deterrence. Uh, that's sort of like a whole of government look, if you will, using many different things, not just nuclear, of course, uh, the other um, tool sets that we have to try to keep us out of conflict. But at the end of the day, uh, knowing that we have a safe, secure, and effective nuclear deterrent now into the future is going to give us and guarantee the security of our nation. Oh, very good. General Lutton, any thoughts on that? Sir, uh, I, I'd add, uh, you know, for us from a tactical level, all, all the way uh, to the operational, uh, we, we've doubled down on our uh, communication with our airmen uh, across our force on uh, the purpose, the why of what they're doing. And we back that up with, I think, some very good uh, intel briefs uh, by our intel teams uh, that definitely, as General Dawkins uh, alluded to, uh, re refocus and, and and answer a lot of questions for those airmen and begin a dialogue with those airmen that are doing that day-to-day -day alert mission. I, I would also say, uh, you know, as, as we look uh, at world events, one point that's been underscored to me, or actually two, is, uh, and I really learned this uh, at the National Nuclear Security Administration when I served there a couple of years after General Dawkins, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a component to this where we have our operational deterrent force. There's a component to it where we have to ensure that we're still very active with counterproliferation. We still have to ensure that we're very active with nuclear nonproliferation. And then we have uh, obviously a very healthy treaty system that is uh, transparent and compliant. I think when you put those things together, uh, it really positions one well uh, for very uncertain times. The, the second component to it, and, and I think it isn't really talked enough, is how we get our airmen more immersive cultural experiences. So when we're looking at concepts like integrated deterrence, it's just not about the gear, right? There, there's there's a, 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 a um, a geostrategic component to that. I'll just use two examples within our command. Uh, right now, uh, we have a wing commander, uh, Barry Little, up at Malmstrom, who's an Olmstead scholar who studied and lived in China with his family for three years and is and is fluent in China uh, Chinese. Um, my vice, who's going to be the Afia uh, commander, is fluent in Russian uh, and has been a part of those uh, New START inspection teams. I think when you blend those experiences together uh, with our deterrence capabilities, our nuclear nonproliferation, our counterproliferation, um, it, that is a very uh, powerful team uh, in support of our nation. So that's well said, uh, General Lutton. Um, we have, it just so happens we have a number of uh, college students who are uh, zoned in today to listen to this. And uh, I'm curious what you would say about, you know, uh, them coming into this in some way, whether they come into the Air Force to become part of the uh, ICBM operation in some way, uh, whether missileers or maintainers or food services or whatever it might be, security, um, or into defense industry in this way. Any thoughts about uh, what they might want to be buying coming in? Yeah, so um, whether you're coming into the defense industry, uh, I go out and, and inter interact with folks uh, 
uh, to various contractors and, and their subcontractors and others. And, and I always chat with them and I chat with the, the uh, NNSA people that are out there, the, the workers. And I say, you know, um, while I will walk through an airport or walk downtown and be thanked for my service if I'm in uniform, people don't realize that the work that they are doing is for their nation as well in, in the nation's defense. And so I, I think if you if you want to um, aspire to a higher calling, rather than go perhaps to Amazon or a Google or somebody like that, although some of those organizations have defense sector, uh, consider going and working at a top tier lab like Lawrence Livermore, Los Alamos National Lab, Sandia National Labs, or consider going uh, to Kansas City plant and, and doing cutting edge engineering and production of things that you can walk away from and go, I built that. Uh, that that's a great place to to look to go. Um, same thing with the military. If you want to go and serve your uh, serve your nation in an area that not many people understand this this great power co uh, competition that we're really seeing uh, today, and and so we're, again we're having a resurgence back in the fifties. There are just so few of us who understand uh, nuclear policy and how these dynamics work that we need folks to study that piece of it as well, international relations and others. So I think that. Uh, this area is right for folks who want to serve their nation in some manner, whether or not it's the military or a civilian or with a defense contractor to come in. No, very good. General Litton, any thoughts? Sir, I think uh, the key word there is service, and service can come in many uh, different types and forms. Uh, as General Dawkins indicated, uh, you can serve in any capacity in our national laboratories uh, that are world-class, uh, qu quite honestly, um, uh, there's really nothing that uh, really comes close to uh, our uh, national laboratories in, in the United States. Uh, you can serve in that capacity, or uh, if you're motivated to serve in uniform, uh, I just ask you to look at the United States Air Force first. I think uh, it's an exciting time in our Air Force. It's uh, uh, a challenging time. Uh, so if you like excitement, you like challenge, uh, I, I think those are things that would attract you to serve in our United States Air Force. Yeah, you've got the best, both of you, have got the best airmen. Oh, well, we've come to the end of this segment. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate it. Uh, and General Dawkins, uh, General Lutton, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, and just uh, appreciate, and you take back to your staffs, our big thanks. Yes, okay, sir. we're going to move to the next segment of Q&A. Uh, we'll open uh, to the audience. Just want to remind the audience, uh, raise your hand. Uh, when I call on your name, please uh, unmute yourself, tell us who you are, where you're from, and ask your question. So uh, first question we'll go to is Steve Trimble. Steve, how you doing? Uh, yeah, hi, thanks for, uh, thanks for calling on me. Steve Trimble with Aviation Week. Uh, I, I have two uh, platform questions. Uh, the first is on SEOC. Um, I believe the RFP is out now. Uh, but, uh, you know, traditionally we've seen that uh, as a commercial derivative of uh, a four-engined aircraft uh, or a military derivative of a commercial four-engined aircraft. Um, there are no four-engine aircraft in production anymore um, So uh, on the commercial side. So um, what are your options? Do you, can you use a used aircraft? Do you have to do what the Navy did and go to a C-130? Or can you use something like a 767 or, or 777? And then secondly, on, on SLIP A, uh, what is the future platform for that system? As um, the Navy transitions to the C-130, uh, where does SLIP A go? 
um, and that ALCS mission. I'll take that. So, yes, uh, so the uh, Airborne Operations Center, the replacement for the NAOC, as you talked about. Uh, again, the RFP is out there. They will continue to work that through the acquisition community uh, on, on what that's going to look like and how that's going to um, be orchestrated. So I don't want to get out in front of uh, my AQ counterparts over there uh, on the E-ring. Uh, on the slip A, on Global Strike and, and uh, others, uh, you know, we're working with the Navy and STRATCOM to develop the way ahead on that one. Uh, make sure that we've got the same capability uh, or improved capabilities of what we already have today. Very good. Go to Air Force Magazine with Tobias Nagel. Are you there? Can you hear me? You can. Okay, great. Well, thank you uh, for doing this. I wanted the, this morning, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, moved the doomsday clock a little bit closer to midnight from 100 seconds to 90 seconds. So you talked a little bit uh, about deterrence and you've talked a little bit about uh, the risk level. So I wanted to come back to a couple of things you said. One was um, the intent to, uh, intent to uh, can change overnight. Um, and and in order to deter, we've got to be ready. With our modernization taking so long, what's the, you know, are, 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 do we risk moving too slowly? Well, what I, my response to that is uh, what I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, General Dutton's team has to be, uh, and General uh, Javera's team, uh, Eighth Air Force, have to be as good on their uh, last day or every day as they were on their first day. So we will continue to ensure that we sustain the current uh, weapon systems that we have um, as well as they've been sustained in the past uh, until we have a fully fielded replacement. And so that's where what I'll tell folks is uh, we have people that are ready and, and systems that are ready to execute the mission today and uh, and will be until they're replaced. Yeah. Yeah. General Lutton, what do you think about that? You know, you're you're there with the crews. Yes, sir. Yeah, for us, I mean, we we have a mantra, you know, we'll move the speed of nuclear surety, right? So, uh, you know, we will be very deliberate in our actions and activities. Uh, and I think uh, the nation expects us to be very deliberate in those actions and activities. And as I indicated before, what we're doing right now sets the conditions uh, and allows us uh, to be ready uh, to modernize uh, when that program and, uh, you know, my commander, the air component commander say, hey, uh, go ahead and begin modernization. So we've begun those activities right now. And, and uh, I, I like the position that our operational force is in right now uh, to meet my air component commander's uh, requirements to both meet our operational mission and then meet the mission of uh, modernizing the force. Yeah, very good. It, there is a, a write-in question here I want to uh, uh, bring in, and I'm not sure if we uh, covered this, but it has to do with Minuteman Three sustainability throughout this period of, of the modernization. Is that uh, secure as far as funding and plans go? Um, I'll, I'll give a couple of comments to turn it over to Mike and to see what he thinks. But uh, yes, and that's that gets brought up anytime we talk about sentinel or any type of uh, new system we always uh, it's, it's in the context of the icbm system systems that we have or ones that we're developing so uh they're they're part and parcel 
So we talk about them uh, while sometimes separately, we, we talk about ensuring that we have uh, sustainment support necessary to keep them going. I realize that's getting more difficult as I've testified in the Hill on every year that goes on to, to, to find suppliers that make these 1960s era parts in many, in many cases. But uh, again, we, uh, we're not losing our focus on sustaining the, the current systems we have. I may have some. Yeah, General Ludden, please. Sir, I would echo that in that uh, sustainment is a team sport. It's at the unit, uh, but it also involves my team here, uh, General Bell's team at the MAGCOM, and then our Air Force Materiel Command, uh, John Newberry, who's the Nuclear Weapons Center Commander. Uh, all of those teams are laser focused on ensuring uh, that we have adequate uh, supply chain uh, to sustain Minuteman 3. I would also say that we as a team are taking a very deliberate look at the sustainment of Miniman 3 and what pieces are forward compatible, if any, with uh, Sentinel. Uh, and so if there's a piece, let's say, that is not forward compatible with Sentinel, uh, the, there will be a team uh, discussion, team decision uh, to put that non-forward compatible uh, system per se at Minot or a Malmstrom that is going to get more longevity out of that system. It's a better investment for our taxpayers uh, and quite honestly is going to allow us to sustain that Miniman 3 system at Minot and Malmstrom a little longer. Okay, we'll go to Frank Wolf. Frank. Hello, Hi, how are you? Um, Got you. Good, good, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to maybe go back to the uh, <clears throat> Miniman for you for a, for a moment. Um, just in terms of the conversions of the, um, the 450 Miniman 3 silos to accommodate uh, Sentinel, um, I just wondered uh, in terms, I guess Parsons Corporation is um, doing I guess, some of the, or the silo work, but I wondered, just in terms of what the defense industrial base needs to know and and uh, just in terms of those conversions and um, sort of when the when the conversions that FE Warren, when do you expect them to start? So those will be in, in, the, in the late 20s, um, mid to late 20s. Uh, Mike's already got some um, folks looking at things out there. But I think what the defense industry needs to know though is it's uh, again, uh, a scale that we've not seen in um, in decades. Yeah. And when you look back to when Minuteman was initially put on the ground, we had empty fields. And then you went and you drilled down and you dug out and you put the, the new silos and the sport equipment there. Well, now we are having to uh, go to those, those uh, um, sites that already have equipment in them and uh, decommission them, dig some of it away, uh, destroy some of the facilities, and then put new facilities where those old facilities were. And so this is the challenge. And when you're gonna do uh, one per week for nine years, is what the average is. That's quite a big uh, uh, level of work. And I talked about workers and, and concrete and reinforcement bar and welders, all those things. It's it's a major undertaking that we've uh, have not seen in uh, over 50 or 60 years. And Mike may have something else to add. Yeah, General Lutton, any thoughts on that? Yes, sir. I'd, I'd just add uh, two items, and, and it may not be well understood. Um, the, the Northrop team 
uh, and, and General Dawkins is aware of this and some folks are, um, has done some things that I think are, are very uh, effective. So out in Promontory, Utah, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, um, there was a Minuteman 3 launch facility that was built from the ground up. Uh, and the contract team has uh, basically taken that Minuteman 3 launch facility that they built and used it to experiment with how they are going to uh, convert uh, the existing uh, launch facilities out in the missile complex. Uh, so I think that is an effort that will put some time back on the clock. Uh, another effort I think that is critical as we look at the concepts of how as a team we're gonna do this the concept is not going to be executed the same way we sustain Minuteman 3, i.e. we have a main base and then you spoke out from that main base out into the missile complex, right? Uh, I would anticipate an effort where you'll have smaller um, logistics sustainment hubs forward out in the complex. So you're actually cutting down the amount of time uh, the contractors are transiting back and forth uh, from a main base like uh, an F.E. Warren to, you know, western Nebraska or northern Colorado or eastern Montana. Those little efficiencies, I think, are critical when you look at the macro scale. So th those are, I think, very positive uh, indicators for me. Very good. Let me squeeze in one last question here before we're finished. Uh, we have from Air Force Magazine also, uh, Chris Prodzik. Yes, hello, can you hear me? Yep, you bet we yep. can. Uh, General Dawkins, I'm speaking to your concern about, um, you know, having enough workers and raw materials uh, connected to the supply chain and all of those things. Um, across the force, we've seen, uh, you know, this huge effort of uh, working with um, other industries, commercial, outside, outside of the specific force, has, have you seen or what kind of impact have you seen as a result of these kind of efforts to really um, really expand out to, to like the commercial sector for development of, of what you need and when you need it? Thanks for the question. Uh, if, if I've got it um, right, uh, where, where can we leverage what's done on the private sector? Well, you know, I think we're going to leverage quite a bit of what's done in the private sector. There's only so many ways you can pour concrete and weld and tie rebar and all those type of uh, things associated with that. Notice we have not talked about really building a missile or guidance sets. I mean, we know how to put stuff into space. You know how to build missiles. We've been doing that for uh, 15, 60 years. So um, to me, that's the easier part of this, not yeah. to dismiss it. Uh, but but again, that's why I'm sort of uh, really harping on this. And we will work with... Uh, uh, you know, Northrop Grumman is going to, uh, for certain, going to subcontract this all this construction out to a, a large company that is well versed in construction techniques and has done big projects like this before. Um, but even then, it, this may be something that's uh, very dynamic, even for that company. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, we've come to the end of uh, this aerospace. Sure, if I could issue. add one on that. Oh, sure. If it's sure, okay, go ahead. Yeah, just just one that is kind of under the radar, but. Uh, at the local levels, there's been quite a bit of discussion uh, with our community colleges, our trade colleges, our trade schools in and around the local area, uh, definitely socializing that so they can be postured as needed, uh, as General Dawkins indicated. I, I think that's pretty critical 
Uh, and we've seen that be successful with the National Nuclear Security Administration, some of their partnerships. So uh, just wanted to add that piece, sir. No, that's a great point, General. Well, thank you out there, uh, zooming in on us. Uh, General Lutton, we really appreciate it. And to you, General Dawkins, please pass your uh, your airmen our, our appreciation and, and thanks for their service. And uh, uh, call on Mitchell Institute if you need any support in the future. Really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Well, to you all in our audience, uh, and it's all from uh, Mitchell Institute, the entire team, have a great aerospace day. <laughs>